Thank you, preacher. Yes, sir. Well, it's good to be back with you again today, and uh, if you were here last Sunday and you came back, that's your fault, because you heard me last week, okay? It is a blessing to be here and to enjoy the fellowship with the people that we've known and to meet some new people, and we thank the Lord for the growth, and we thank the Lord for, I was just telling the preacher this morning that I'm glad that he's a man of God that loves the men of God, and I understand that's what he was doing when he was gone last week, and today uh, we live in a day and age when pastors need encouragement and they need to be uh, anyway ministered to, and so I'm glad that he was able to do that because I think that's a ministry in itself, and to realize that. My wife, I want her to stand over here so you know who she is. She don't like to... If she had her way, she'd be on the back row, but I try to bring her down front, get her close to the altar as I can, okay? But uh, it's a joy that we look at the ministry here and see the improvements and see the blessings of God on your combined efforts. Uh, we have uh, entered this last five months into a ministry to an RV park down in Yuma, Arizona. I don't know if you've ever been to Yuma, but it's a nice place to be in the winter. I wouldn't want to be there in the summer, but uh, 120 degrees. But uh, we are just blessed that we were contacted by the man that owns the park. In fact, he owns two of them. And we spent the last five months in the ministry of being a uh, preacher, chaplain in those two parks down there. And it was kind of eye-opener to me because I never realized there were so many people that went south for the winter. That town of 90,000 goes to 180,000 people in the wintertime, and there are over 100 RV parks down there. And uh, the one that we were in, the one that we stayed in and put our uh, trailer in was a capacity of about seven to 800 people. The other park had about 250 to 300 and uh, they're always full, I guess. And I never realized, I'll just say this, because it's quite a ministry to get into a situation where everybody's seniors. It was They were 55-plus. You had to be 55-plus. Most of them were in their 70s. And it was quite a challenge to me to realize that uh, several of those people would not be here a year from now because they would be in eternity. And... Uh, Sorry to say most of them weren't prepared. But we started a Bible study, and uh, what amazed me is the people that believed uh, uh, not in God or did not have a true uh, faith in God, and uh, they were in false religions, they would come to our Bible study. And uh, they probably wouldn't go to a church, but we had them in the park, and they're bored, so they'll find some activity. So here they come. And uh, we had an opportunity to do something that just amazed me. And I went to the local pastor. I don't know if any of you know Brother uh, John Getch, but uh, he has a Faith Baptist Church there in Yuma. So we wanted to hook up with a local New Testament church and uh, come to find out it was an eye-opener to him as I visited with him. And we would attend when we could the services there. And uh, he said, I never realized there was such a ministry here. And, and he's been there for 12 years, I understand. But uh, anyway, uh, it was an eye-opener to Arlene and I to be asked of the Lord. And we've been invited to 
go back and we've agreed if our health holds up and so far God's been good to us and we're willing to do that uh, for his honor and glory. So pray for us, pray for our safety and our health. That's the two things that uh, certainly at our age we begin to realize that towing a rig and running around over the mountains and so forth, it's, uh, well, uh, we actually own an RV lot. Uh, that's what it is. It's just a pad and the hookups there in the city of Branson. And uh, if you've ever been to Branson, you know what it is. It's an entertainment center for seniors. But anyway, uh, uh, we own that uh, lot there, so or we're buying that lot there so we can have a place to uh, come and we need to have dental work and doctor's appointments and so forth. So appreciate your prayers in that behalf. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with us to the book of Exodus chapter 6 this morning? Exodus chapter 6. <clears throat> I want to talk to you this morning about heritage because it's a wonderful thing that we have an heritage in the Lord. And uh, we have a heritage as a church. And uh, probably, if you're aware of it, you have a heritage as a family. A few years ago, my uh, folks began to look into the heritage of our family and found that it was very interesting. On my mother's side, uh, my uh, uh, uncle Jensen, he decided to do the Coleman side and he got the family tree clear back to, they hung some guy for horse stealing, so he just cut the tree off there, and it, that's it. You know, he didn't want any of that bad things. But heritage is a wonderful thing, and as a good look at this passage, uh, Moses has gotten discouraged. And uh, he has a, a reason to be discouraged as far as we look at this. In chapter 5, you realize that Moses has already gone to, you know, the story of him being leading the people of God out of Egyptian bondage. And he's gone to Pharaoh and told him the message God told him to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, well, who is Lord? I'm, I'm the king here and I have the say so and the power and so forth. I don't know this. Uh, God that you're talking about, but uh, <clears throat> no, I'm not going to let the people go. And uh, so some time goes by, and Moses gets kind of uh, impatient. He did have that kind of uh, a nature, if you know the story about him. And uh, he was supposed to uh, do one thing, speak, and instead he struck the rock. And uh, he had a tendency to lose his temper. He rose up one day and murdered a man and killed him. And uh, he had a, had a problem with impatience. Now, you may not have that problem, but some of us do. And as time had gone by, uh, Moses got kind of uh, impatient and wanting God to do something. And he accuses God of and asking him, why haven't you uh, carried this out that they would be relieved? In fact, the last part of chapter 5, Moses says, For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to this people, neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. And he's asking God why. Why haven't you done something? Now, maybe you're in a situation right now in your life and you just begin to question God and maybe you've become impatient. Well, 
I hope this will help you today because all of us have need of patience. And the way that we gain patience is through tribulation. So be careful if you pray for patience because things are going to get tough. And yet we realize that Moses is learning that God in his timetable will carry out his plan and his program. And you can't rush God's plan. God's got a, a time schedule. He's got a situation that he works out and so forth. So in chapter 6, in the first eight verses, we find that God says to Moses, Moses, I want to encourage your heart. And I want to do this because I want you to realize that I'm going to make you some specific promises, and these promises will encourage your heart, and if you share them with the people and the leadership of the people of God, it will also bless their heart and encourage them and make them to realize. Now, I take a text to God's people. He declares in verse number 8 of the sixth chapter, God says, I will give to you an heritage, okay? Meaning that God says, I'm promising you a possession. I'm going to bring something that will be a delight. And so with that promise, they are going into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Now, I believe that it exposes us to something in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And when God says, I will, several times, we realize that God is sharing his concern and his love for his people. You know, when someone says, I will do such and such, it's because they care about you. I will do such and such. And God's going to say this several times in these first six, uh, eight verses of chapter six. And yet I thought about when he said, I will, he was saying to the people of God, I love you. You, you remember when you got married, you stood at an altar and you said those words, will you? And you said, I will, or has it been too long since you've forgotten that? But anyway, I, I will. Showing your love. Uh, love is a wonderful thing expressed by God to us. And I think we can take these promises and apply it to our Christian life. I'm thinking about love. I read an article not too long ago that some professional people had asked some kids what they thought love meant. Boy, this is something that's kind of an eye-opener in several ways. What does love mean to kids? And I read through this, and this is a group that's four to eight years old, so you know they're full of wisdom on this subject. What does this mean? Well, one of the kids said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over to paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. That's the wisdom of an eight-year-old. And then I read, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them, uh, making them give you any of theirs. In other words, you just, you know, you come out ahead on that deal. Well, at age four says, love is what makes you smile when you're tired. That's a pretty good one. And then love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy. She takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. Uh-huh, okay. If you, want to if you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend who you hate. Wow, that's a good philosophy, isn't it? My mommy loves me more than anybody. You don't see anyone else kissing me to sleep at night, do you? 
love. What a wonderful thing. Now, you dog lovers will love this one. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him all alone all day long, age four. God's love is such a wonderful thing. And God loves his people. I read where one four-year-old said, I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. <laughs> oh, how sweet. Love. It's a wonderful thing. As I looked at this, I thought about Deuteronomy 14.2 says, God says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord that chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself, above all the nations that are upon the earth, born again, saved people, have those great blessed promises from God. First Peter 2.9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who had called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God loved the people of Israel, and he's going to make several promises to them that we'll look at quickly this morning, and as to what he would do, and we can apply that today if you're a born-again Christian, and if you're not, you ought to become one so you can claim these promises that are from God. Now, he declared in verse number 8, uh, <coughs> He said, I, I will give you a heritage. I will give to you for an heritage. I am the Lord. And I began to think about this. I thought about a heritage. A heritage is a legacy, a birthright. This church has a heritage. It has a legacy. It has a history. It has that you can go back and check and see what happened and certain things and experiences that people went through in this church. And yet to realize Heritage is a wonderful thing. And a lot of people, and by the way, can I just say this in passing? If you are a senior here today, have you written down the heritage of your family? Have you written down in writing the heritage of your testimony? Somewhere in your file, somewhere there should be a record of how you came to know Christ as your personal Savior. Because if the Lord calls you home, there may be an occasion where some family member may be looking through your papers and they may find and, and should find a testimony when you came to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It's really a wonderful thing to have a, a biblical Christian heritage. And to realize this, we'd have to look and see what God has done for these people that he would give them that title they would have a future now notice in these verses we're going to look through they're all future assurances or guarantees you know there's a difference in a guarantee it's amazing to me you can buy a car and they'll say well we'll guarantee it for 90 days or we'll guarantee it for 12 months and and so forth you buy a house and the day you sign the papers unless there's been a different contract that you've got a guarantee that nothing's going to break in that house but when it comes to God and eternal book we find out that God makes eternal promises and he's not one that gives you something and then it breaks and he can't fix it he can fix it he will fix it he will take care of it. he has that guarantee 
Now let's read through these verses and let's just select these that we look at them. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do. Now we're going to see these I wills through here. And now he says, I'm going to show you what I will do. Notice what he said. I will do to Pharaoh. Now Pharaoh's the king. Pharaoh has the authority. Pharaoh can just uh, look at anyone and he can decide whether they live or die. He has that authority. But God says, I want to encourage you, Moses. I'm going to show you what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. Now, he doesn't touch Pharaoh personally until the last plague that comes. But he does affect him in some of the things. But the ultimate thing is that Pharaoh got touched where he hurt the most. When his oldest child died that night. You see, God knows where your seat of affection is. And I've often said this, that God does not touch the heart or the seat of your affection in your life. But he will start out in a big perimeter. If he's dealing with you, he will deal with you. And eventually he will get to the center of the seat of your affections. And I believe this is what's going to happen to Pharaoh, but he doesn't get too impressed with the darkness. He didn't get too impressed with the frog. He didn't get too impressed with a lot of things that happened, the cattle and so forth, and those plagues. But God knew what he would listen to, and that was the final plague when God took the life of all the firstborn throughout the land. So he said, this is what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. I believe that this is what the promise was to God's people. There's going to be a retribution to the enemy. I know that Satan is powerful. I know that he has might. I know that he's the prince and power of the air. But I want to know something that Satan one day is going to be totally defeated. He's going to be totally done away with. His influence will be removed from the world. His influence and, uh, and things that affect us will be completely taken off the scene. He is a defeated person. He hasn't agreed to that yet, but he will have to agree to it because he might have a might, but God is almighty. And his retribution is going to come. And that's what he's telling Moses. Moses, I know that the things haven't come to pass like you want, but there is a day when I'm going to take care of Pharaoh. There's going to be a retribution. And I don't know about you, but I long for the day when the Lord says, come up hither, and he takes care of Satan once and for all. A retribution. We look forward to that. That's a promise of God. Look in verse number 6. As he says in verse number 6, Whereby say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Number 2. He is going to relieve them of their burdens. You know, as we go through our Christian life and being in the ministry, I've known a lot of different people. And some of them have burdens that they have carried their entire lives. Some of them have had physical burdens. Some of them have had emotional burdens. Some of you have had situations that you've had to carry all your life as a burden. But one day, God says, I'm going to take and remove your burden. Isn't that what he says? Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. There is a rest for 
the saints of God. There is a time when God's going to remove all of our burdens, whether it be physical, emotional, or relationship. Those burdens will be lifted, and the trauma of that carrying that burden will be taken care of. I'm glad that that is a promise that God says to these people. They were in slavery. They were in bondage. Notice what it says here in verse number 6. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm with great judgment. But he says, first, I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you. I will rid you, and I will redeem you. What a blessing it is to know that the saint of God has been redeemed. I love that song. I'm redeemed by love divine. Glory, glory. Christ is mine. All to him I now resign. I have been, I have been redeemed. But I want you to notice he said that I will redeem you with a stretched out arm. This reveals to them of his power. Another promise. God is not limited in his power. He can take care of your situation as he sees fit. I will redeem you with a stretched out arm. You see, he's going to defeat all their gods. He's going to defeat every situation. I'm sure that you could recognize when God said to Moses in Exodus 3, 19 through 20, And I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand, and I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. After that happened, Jeremiah would record for us in Jeremiah 32, 21, And hast brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders and with a strong hand, with a stretched out arm. Notice that phrase, stretched out arm. Our text says it was a stretched out hand. There's significance in that. God said, I'm going to do it with a stretched out arm and with great terror and has given them this land, which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it. Exodus 14, 8 says that the children of Israel went out with an high hand, a high hand. Which is the difference? Satan may have a mighty hand, but God has the high hand. I think about the flood was coming, but Noah had God's high hand in an ark where his family could be saved from the deluge of a worldwide catastrophe. A high hand. The King Darius had his lion's den, but Daniel had God's high hand, his angel. And I like to think that the den of lions became Daniel's den because God's high hand intervened on his behalf. I think of Nebuchadnezzar. He had his fiery furnace, but the three Hebrew children had God's high hand in the fourth man that walked among the fire with them. Like unto the Son of God. Haman had his gallows, but Esther had God's high hand and Mordecai to reverse the victims. God had a high hand. Which do you have, the high hand or the mighty hand? You and I are born sinners, doomed for a devil's hell. 
But because of the grace of God and Calvary's experience that Jesus Christ paid our sins debt, God comes out with a high hand and says, Satan can no longer have this person because I have washed him in the blood of the cross. Thank God for that. God's high hand. I'm glad he has a high hand. He revealed to them his power that would work. I think about this stretched out arm. I was reading about these people that are flying trapeze artists in the circus. And uh, one of them was interviewed. And they said, well, uh, how is it that you can just let go and reach out to that person standing on that stationary or on that other swing or however they're working? And he said, well, he said, you have to understand that one is the flyer and one is the catcher. And they said, now, what happens is that when the trapeze artist is going out and swinging out, when he stretches out his hands, he does not grab the other person's hands. The catcher has to grip their wrist. For if the flyer attempts to grab their wrist, they will most likely break their wrist and themselves and plunge them both to a tragic situation so what happens is that the flyer has to reach out and the catcher has to reach and extend its arms and when he extends its arms it's like the flyer has to completely put his all his trust in the catcher he can't try to save himself he can't try to catch himself he has to trust that person explicitly to catch them or else they'll both have a fall Oh, isn't that what God does to us? He stretches out his arms to us and says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Have you stretched out your hands to him? The trouble is that sometimes people say, Well, I'm going to try to catch myself, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and so forth. And you falter and you fail because you need to trust God. And believe in him and his power and his authority. For he said, he came unto his own and his own received him not. But to them that did receive him. To them gave he the power, the right, the authority to become the sons of God. What a blessing it is to know that his power is revealed in that deliverance of those people. Yes, Pharaoh had his mighty hand, but God had his high hand. And they came out of Egypt, as you know the story. It's exactly what God said would happen, just like the person that comes to Christ and accepts him as their Savior by the power of Christ, the power of God unto salvation, the Scripture says. And this is a salvation that takes place by the power of God. And then I notice he said in verse number 7, I will take you to me for a people. He will receive them, and he received them as his people. Twenty-eight times in the Bible... God says, my people Israel, he is glad to be called their father. He is glad to be called that they are seeking, as Hebrews eleven sixteen says, a better country, that is, an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. I wish you'd just revel in the fact today that if you know the Lord as your Savior, you're a child of God. 
a son of God. You're a part of the family of God. You've been made a part of a family that we have been not deserving to be in, but we've been adopted into the family. And there is a difference. God has accepted us. If you've been saved, God has accepted you as one of his children. And that ought to encourage your heart to realize that he says, I want you to be, I want you to call me. I want you to be my people. It's a wonderful thing when you accept Christ as your Savior. Because everybody wants to join and belong to something. And there are people that are disconnected with their families. They're disconnected with seemingly even this life. But when they come to Christ, as we say, they get hooked up. And then they get in the fellowship of a local New Testament church. And they are part of that family of God. And they've gotten a people that is their people now. And they're not ashamed. And he is not ashamed of them. Aren't you glad that God says, I not only forgive your past, forgive you, but I forget it. I forget it. Oh, people may bring up your past. People may say, well, I, I remember this and so forth. I remember going to a family reunion and I had an uncle that was an unbeliever. Thank God he's accepted Christ and he's now in heaven. But before he got saved, he made it a point to just ridicule my dad. Anytime there was a family reunion, he just couldn't wait to bring up Harold, my dad's past. In fact, one reunion we came to and he had photographs. And he began to pass them around the family members and said, well, this is the place where Harold used to go and, and uh, he drank and got drunk. And he showed the pictures of those places. That was embarrassing to my dad. I know that. He was ashamed of it. But you see, the one that really counts is the Heavenly Father. And those photographs weren't in front of him. They had been erased. I care not where you were or what you were before you got saved, but God says, I will take your sins and I will hide them in the depths of the sea. I'll place them as far as the east is from the west. Aren't you glad he didn't say north and south because there's a north and south pole? We could find all our sins there. God said, no, I'm going to put it so far. I'm going to hide it behind my back. Thank God. He's not ashamed for us to be called his people. A child of God. When you pillow your head tonight, if you accepted Christ as your Savior, you could say, thank God, I'm a child of God. And when he calls all the Christians home, all the children of child of God home, I'm going to be one of those that's going up. In what we call the rapture. And then I think. He not only received them as people. But notice what he said in verse 7. I will be to you a God. He revealed to them that blessed position. And he said. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I get a little amused as people say. Well. I don't see how you can accept. Christ, and then you act so confident that you are going to heaven. Well, Paul said, I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. What happens when a person gets saved? 
they come to that point where they accept Christ as their Savior and they commit their soul and their life in his hands. The next time you mail a letter, you remember that you committed that letter for just 52 cents and you'd be disappointed if it didn't reach its destination. That's called faith. That's called trust. And when a person comes to Christ and they accept him, they move from a position of being transformed from a sinner to a saint. Thank God for that. That's a position that we come through because of the Lord Jesus Christ willing to give us eternal everlasting life. 1 John 5, 13 says, These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on, not in, but on the name of the Son of God. There is a difference. This chair over here is a chair that you could say, I believe that chair exists. I can see it. But that's not believing on that chair. When you go over to that chair and you relax and you sit down on it, and if it collapses, you're surprised because you have gone from believing in that chair to believing on that chair. Many people say, I believe Christ exists. I believe God exists. But they have never put their faith and trust on him and given their life to him. But once you do that, there is a sweet peace of confidence the Bible speaks of, that assurance that comes into your heart. Thank God for that. That's not through religion. That's through regeneration. That's not through somebody transposing you in some situation in a religious rule. That's because you have been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ's salvation provided at Calvary. Oh, a blessed position that we have. And then I think of this. As I look to this passage and I see <clears throat> he not only gives them a heritage, but I believe that he gives them success. He said, I will bring you and give it to you in verse number 8. Did he? In June of 1948, God allowed the children of Israel, the Jew, to come back into their own land. Ezekiel 36 had recorded that there would be a time when God would bring all their people out of nations and people and tongues and languages and bring them back to their own land. And they are there today because God said, I'm making a promise I'm going to give you that land. It took a long time. A lot of years went by. A lot of people said it'll never happen. They still don't possess all the land that God has promised them, but they're there in their own land. God said, I'll give it to you. I will give you that. I will have you have success. I will have you have that which you have desired. I will make that promise. But if you notice verse number 9, there's a reaction here as we wind this up. Moses so spake so unto the children. He delivered the message, but they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. You see, they had impatience and lack of courage, and, and Moses was delivering the message, but they had gotten discouraged, and they were disappointed, and they had quit trusting God and they kept looking in the rearview mirror of what it used to be like 
Instead of looking through the windshield and the front part, somebody said that's why you should be always looking more forward than backwards. Only crazy people drive looking in the rearview mirror. God wants us to look forward. He wanted the children of Israel to look forward to these promises. He wants you as a believer to look forward to the things that God will yet do in your life and yet use you. I'm kind of embarrassed sometimes when seniors get to an age when they retire from their business world and they retire from serving God. Where do you find that in the scriptures? God used people right up until the very time he called them home. He called Moses home, but God was finished with his job. You and I as seniors, it shouldn't be a time when we say, well, now I'm, I've done my eight to five for 20 years or 20, 30 years or whatever. Now I'm just going to sit back and take it easy. No, the Bible says so much more as you see the day approaching. I think we ought to get busier for God instead of lazier. And that's not good English, but it gets the point across. We need to understand that when we have more time on our hands, let's use it for God. Let's make sure that we finish well. That's our heart's desire. I think about they were avoiding the answer. There were multiple problems and they hurt too much. And, and they thought, well, I just don't, I just don't want to trust God because uh, I just can't do it. But oh, what a joy it is when you trust him. When you just step out by faith and say, God, I don't understand this. When this guy called us to go to that park and, and, and work in it, I've never done that before. I've never been to Yuma, Arizona. I knew it was hot down there because everybody went down in the wintertime, but that's about it. We stepped into a new thing, and when you get 82 years old, you're kind of a little leery of just doing something new. You'd like to just sit in the old groove, you know, and, and you get in a habit and so forth. But oh, the joy that when you go out and you just step out and you take that Sunday school class, you start singing in a choir, you start giving your tithes and offering, you start letting the pastor know, is there something I can do? I've got some time on my hand. I'm sure he'll find you something to do. There's always more work to be done than workers. And yet it would come that point when you say, I, I thank God that I, I pulled the trigger. I remember the first time I shot a shotgun. You see, I'd heard, as, and I was just a young boy, I, I'd heard that it, a shotgun will hit you real hard when you pull the trigger. So, so I thought, well, I'll just practice, so I'll just hold it away from my shoulder a little ways. <laughs> Some of you shot a shotgun, you know what I'm talking about. I thought that thing knocked my shoulder off. I couldn't believe it. I thought, boy, that's no fun. Give me that 22. I'm not going to use a shotgun anymore. Then you go a little further and you see a rabbit and you say, your brother says, don't you see that rabbit? I said, no, I don't see that rabbit. Here, you shoot the shotgun. <laughs> but trusting God is the same way. What is God asking you to do that you just can't quite get it all figured out? And you don't know how you're going to do it. And you don't know how the ability that you have that you could do it. But the Bible says that he gives us both the will to do of his good pleasure. What does that mean? He gives us a desire. And if we'll step out by faith and challenge and trust him, then he will enable us to carry it out. 
And what happens is he gets the glory that way. And we don't pat ourselves on the back. We praise him for what he has done through us, enable us to do that. This is what the children of Israel had to do. They had to trust God. Moses had already been through that. He tried to take things in his own hands. He thought when he'd go to the people and would tell them, I'm your deliverer. Follow me. We're going out of Egypt. They said, who are you? You've lived in the palace. We don't know anything about you that we need to know. But eventually they came to the point in God's timetable where they followed him out of Egypt. And weren't they glad they finally were set free. But here's the real joy. Is that when they left Egypt, the Bible says they wanted to get rid of those Israelites so bad. They said, what do you want from us? And the Bible says they spoiled Egypt which meant that they went to the neighbors, they went to anything they wanted, and they were gladly given to them, and they went out of Egypt wealthy. See, God always pays for his labor. They've been working 400 years. They got paid for it. They bankrupt Egypt. How do you think they had the gold and the silver and all that in the wilderness to make the tabernacle? Because they had bankrupt Egypt. God always has a plan, and sometimes we don't understand what he's doing right now. But somewhere down the road, you're going to understand, oh, that's why God did that back then, so that I could be doing this right now. How about it? Have you claimed those promises? If you get discouraged like Moses, come back to this chapter and just look at those I will, I will, I will, I will. And your heart will be encouraged. And God will give you the faith and trust that you need to just take that other step of faith to do something special for him.